that's it. Yeah, it's recording. Um, Lewis, thanks a lot for that. Really enjoyed your book. Thank you for joining you uh, Big Ben much. History, the that's first right. podcast. What an um, honour. Yeah. Uh, here we are in the Marks of Granby pub. Um, I, suppose I just wanted to start, this is a podcast about history, but mm. one of the central points you make in your boy book is that Jeremy Corbyn doesn't have much to do with Labour history. Mm. Explain that a bit. Well, so I think the, the, the really interesting thing about Corbyn and the Corbyn phenomenon more generally is that during one of the central features of Corbynism, one of the central features of his shtick, if you like, of his uh, appeal, certainly it was in 2015, was that the Labour Party was returning to its roots. That Corbyn represented, after sort of aberration of New Labour and then the interregnum of Miliband, that in some way Corbyn, because he was considered to be socialist and because he was considered to be left-wing, that he was a return to, say, the uh, pre-New Labour days, certainly perhaps something akin to the 60s and 70s, or perhaps even the 1940s. Now, my point is that that is not true. In the sense, the one key sense is that Corbyn is actually something much newer, which is he represents the uh, turn, which really begins in the late 70s, of a sort of liberal socialism, or the, the turn within the left to issues around identity, issues around colonialism, issues around uh, those sort of issues around foreign policy. And he therefore represents, partly because he is a different stream of the left, he therefore represents something um, quite new. In a sense that, you know, some people would occasionally say and wear t-shirts saying, with his face on saying, old Labour. Now, if you're saying, what is old Labour? Well, if it's anything like Clement Attlee or Harold Wilson or Jim Callaghan, they would not recognise Corbyn. And what, what, would, what would be the differences between, say, well, Nye Bevan and uh, Jeremy Corbyn? Well, for example, I mean, one big difference is even Nye Bevan believed in nuclear weapons. Okay, he was considered to be very much on the left at his time, but Nye Bevan very much thought, agreed with Ernie Bevan, who, when he said that he thought that Ernie Bevan said this, that, you know, we needed to have a, a, a nuclear weapon, we needed to have a great big bloody Union Jack on it. There was a great deal of agreement about that. Um, in the 60s and 70s, when you started to see the emergence of the new left, epitomised by Tony Benn and Bennism, Bennites, Jeremy Corbyn was one of them. Not only is Jeremy Corbyn not old Labour, but he was in the sense that Callaghan or Wilson was, um, but he was specifically, his whole breed of leftism was created in opposition to old Labour. That's the ultimate irony about it. Not least because, I mean, and if you think about Corbynism, just leave aside the sort of national policy of it, but what is the defining feature of Corbynism in terms of the Labour Party? Well, of course, it's the it's it's the uh, democ so-called democratisation of the Labour Party. It's making the Labour Party more accountable to its members. It's mandatory reselection. It's about outsourcing Labour Party policy making to the membership. These are literally things that Wilson, Callaghan, even Michael Foote fought to some extent against. Um, and just those structural things. Do you see those as ideology, or is that the Corbynites playing to their strength? I think it's both. I don't think it's totally as cynical as saying that it's um, about ideology. You know, Corbyn, into his credit, and to all in fairness to him, has been fighting this fight for a very, very long time. I think he genuinely believes that a more democratic Labour Party, a, more, uh, a Labour Party which is more horizontal in its structure, that doesn't accept things from the top down, is beneficial not only to the Labour Party but also to the country, that the Labour Party gets more uh, legitimacy, political legitimacy, than it would if its membership was smaller. And in fairness, when a lot of these battles were being fought in the 1970s, when people like Corbyn came along and started 
saying the Labour Party is corrupt, the Labour Party is controlled by these tiny management committees in small, dusty rooms that uh, effectively the activists just basically have to go out every Sunday and knock on doors and have no... There he was right. You know, the Labour Party, if you look in the late 70s, the early 80s, in so many places it was locally, it was utterly moribund. It had been allowed to decay. That's why, to some extent, the new left was able to sweep in a place like Bermondsey, obviously the famous by-election in 1981. Um, one of the reasons why Bob Mellish, who was the MP there, uh, was so disgusted is he had allowed, although he was an august figure in many ways, he had allowed his Labour Party, local Labour Party, to atrophy because in many cases it suited many of these old-style corrupt, not corrupt, but in some cases corrupt, I use the word, Labour politicians to exact control in that way. And you know, you had people like Ben, you had people like Corbyn, and all people like him coming along and saying, well, hang on a minute, these organisations, this isn't right. And so I think he had some legitimacy there. Of course, in the modern day, it would not have escaped their attention that in so doing and making these reforms, it just so happens to, they think, benefit all the things that they care about. Although, who knows if that's true in the long term. But certainly, if there was some great Blairite kind of mass within the Labour Party right now, it doesn't seem quite as likely that he'd be pushing for the reforms as much as he is. But I don't think it's an entirely cynical thing. I think he genuinely believes it. And then talking about, I mean, you talk a lot about your, your background in the book, mm. coming from... Uh, Giving the price of Longbridge, I think, of the factory, or mm. you at Erdington yeah. in Birmingham. Both, yeah. yeah. Um, in what way does what he represents now and what your family would have thought of as traditional labour, mm. what are the, what are the you mentioned unilateral, uh, unilateral mm. disarmament, what are the other ways where it's, it almost feels completely alien? Well, you know, Jerry Corbyn is um, an interesting one. I, I remember on the first, on the Labour Party conference when he had been elected in 2015 in Brighton, uh, and he'd been, he'd been announced just that week that he was going to be Labour leader. And I remember. Uh, going to see uh, his first speech and everyone was in shock the whole Labour Party was in shock most of the people were there were not called Benistas because uh, they'd only just joined and therefore they weren't, hadn't been able to apply for managers. so they, really this was a sort of last gasp of the sort of old party or the old members of the Miliband and before were there um, and they were just looking at each other in a state of bereavement um, and obviously this was Corbyn's first attempt or first opportunity to introduce himself to the nation. No one outside of SW1 and Islington and anyone had heard of him. And the first thing he said in his speech, beyond the sort of normal platitudes, is he highlighted the issue of a Saudi Arabian blogger who had been sentenced to receive a hundred lashes. Now, this was obviously a very virtuous cause and very, very valuable. Um, but to me, it really epitomised what a sort of politician and the sort of thing that interests Corbyn, which is Corbyn is interested in foreign affairs, often quite recherche bits of foreign affairs, things that most people, ordinary people, certainly most ordinary Labour voters would never have thought of. But if you were not to escape the confines of the Labour Party grassroots right now, or certain elements of the press, you would think were ubiquitous or ubiquitous concerns. And these sort of things, a, a scepticism towards, I mean, many working class communities, as we know, many working class people are, insti are instinctively very socially conservative. And I don't just mean socially conservative necessarily in terms of social ideas. Everyone has become more liberal over time. But in terms of its attachment to the monarchy, attachment to traditional communities, attachment to the armed services. There's a bit in the book that I talk about where my dad has often regaled me and told me, you know, with great pride about the fact that Britain is able, has a, quote, Rolls-Royce nuclear defence system. It's the best in the world. You know, as if, like, our ability... Without realising it's a shared with, submarine yeah, no, that we're throwing up the Americans. Yeah. He doesn't even consider exactly, you know, the fact we'd have to phone up Trump to, to use it. Trump, probably more than any other American president, would be like, yeah, go for it. Um, but, but, you know, but, but the fact that I think that that sort of, say, pride about something like that would be something that Corbyn would find so difficult to recognise and to accept that it is even, even exists almost. 
and, and, not, and, and not, not, not many roots in manufacturing for example uh, no. his, his roots are in sort of public sector yeah. uh, universe I'm trying to think of the right word but that's the third, third, the third yes. what we now call the third way the third sector sorry that's, yeah rather so than public sector uh, very urban very London I mean Corbyn I think is a quintessentially metropolitan figure I mean this is what the sort of um, uh, this is what sort of interesting things about him. I think that's one of the things I first thought about when he came along is that you know at the time Ed Miliband, who had lost the election to Joe Badley, had been criticised for being a a uh, very London, London figure, yeah, yeah. North London, and there's the Labour Party. You know, basically, you know, Ed Miliband lives in uh, lives in Kentish Town, and Jeremy Corbyn lives in Islington. But what we'll just pop over, <laughs> pop over the postcodes, you know, by one or just go down the Northern Line a little bit. Uh, and so I thought it was extraordinary. Yeah. That's not to say that Corbyn doesn't have appeal. I think his appeal has grown. And I think that there have been, um, amongst working class people as well, but his sort of politics are quite recherche interest in foreign affairs, emerging from the sort of new left movement of the 1970s, uh, anti-colonial, all of this sort of things. It's something that, it doesn't entirely sit outside the Labour tradition, but it's certainly not one that sits in particularly comfortably with many working like, class Like New Labour. Like New Labour. Yeah, no, which, has, which has roots in the tradition, but is also something new, yeah. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Although in one sense, I think you can see there's, there's a straight, although although in, you could not have had Corbynism without New Labour, it is clearly a reaction to New Labour within the party and outside the party. You can also see a straight line between Lay, New Labour and Corbyn, because, um, you know, you can see that the party has been, you know, what, what did Blair, what was Blair's overriding objective? I think he did a great deal for, for a lot of working class music, but what, what, do you, what was his overriding objective? He wanted to bring the middle classes into the Labour Party. My God, Corbyn has done that. You know, <laughs> Corbyn has, you know, you, whatever you say about Corbynism, it is, at its heart, quite a bourgeois project, as was in some ways New Labour. Now, New Labour might have had different uh, outcomes, but that is what Blair wants to do. And, and what Corbyn has managed to do is really cement, whether it's sort of a focus on, you know, student tuition fees, whether it's a focus on many of the sort of foreign policy issues which let's as I say let's be honest you know really only appeal to elements of the middle classes there is a straight sort of line of bourgeoisification of the Labour project from New Labour to Corbyn and indeed we can see that in and Brexit has helped that process along a lot but you can see that with basically every election result that we've had including the local elections this year you know we are now seeing this extraordinary extraordinary situation where among CDE voters Labour only just doing a little bit better than the Tories and Labour are doing loads better than they were among ABC voters so as Thomas Piketty has argued you know and you've seen this in the United States to some extent increasingly politics is divided there's a sort of left party which Coke uh, caters for educated rich people cultured rich people and, and minorities and then a right wing party which is for uh, sort of corporate type business people and the very very poor and that's what you're sort of sort of seeing because we were interested in the sort of socially conservative issues and it seems to me that we are heading in quite a similar direction to that. I just uh, we'll go go back to Corbyn's appeal in a minute. What one thing looking in the past you contend that that Benism was actually much more Benism whatever you want to go, was was much more present and alive in the last 30, 40 years than we realised. If you looked at the votes for the left candidates yeah. and stuff like that, yeah. but it, it never really died and actually was certainly much more than backbench MPs realised. It, it yeah. was always there. Yeah, I think it was. I think that um, the, uh, the New Labour, the New Labour period and the Miliband period as well, it, uh, it appeared so hegemonic that it uh, really underestimated the extent to which 
that was slowly growing over time, partly because of the Iraq war, uh, partly because of tuition fees, partly obviously because of the financial crash. In some ways, looking back now, it seems extraordinary that we didn't believe that there would be a greater turn towards more uh, radical leftist ideas as a result of the crash. The fact that Labour MPs, who obviously were so overwhelmingly against Corbyn, the fact that they were willing to nominate him to put him on the ballot paper shows the complacency that existed. That they thought that, you know, we want to be talking to you for the book, you know, literally said that, you know, we nominated him for sports, you know, we nominated him just to show how weak they were. And a number of things led to that, including Diane Abbott's performance in 2010, where she became fifth. But of course, that was under a different electoral system. system yeah. That was under the, the third or third or third. And, and did people just didn't, did they not see this happening within their own parties? They were, is it, does it show they weren't in touch with yeah, their I, own members in a way? I mean, obviously, there was huge entryism into the party. Right. And but, but he still won. But he won still won with the old members as well. Yeah, yeah. But I think, that, I think to some extent, perhaps they couldn't have quite foreseen, or didn't foresee soon enough anyway, the extent to which in 2015, you know, the Labour Party was in grief. You know, it's really interesting yeah. the difference between the, the result, the, the outcome of the, 20, the uh, re response to the 2010 election in 2015. 2010 was in a rather illusory period for the Labour Party because actually, you know, they went into a 2010 election, they were 20 points behind in the polls, just had an awful reception, still in awful reception. Very nearly stayed in power. And actually, yeah, you know, yeah. 10 Brown seats the other way, 15 seats the other way, 20 seats the other way. Brown could have Nick perhaps, Clegg had taken could Gordon have, Brown's call. Yeah, yeah, someone yeah. could have come, someone could have uh, cobbled something uh, together. So the Labour Party was, oh, you know, one more heave, we'll be back next time. This lot couldn't even get a majority after all of that. Fantastic. Okay, they go for Ed Miliband, they very nearly went for David Miliband. You know, they could have different. Obviously, lots of things happened in between, including Scotland uh, and the Scottish referendum, which transformed everything. In 2015, and again, it seems extraordinary when we look back now, but obviously we all know that, uh, you know, everyone thought that it was at the very least 2015 was a dead heat and actually with the SNP, Labour, even if they didn't come first, could probably cobble something together. And the fact that not only was that not even close, it wasn't even close, it wasn't even arithmetically close, you know, they ended up with 230 seats, the worst results since 1983 and the Labour Party was in a state of grief after that. Shock, grief, bereavement, you saw them go through that. And so, so many of the old members, I think, and I remember speaking to loads of them like this at the time, you know, sometimes when you're in grief, you just sort of think, well, I'm just going to be me, right? I'm right, just going to yeah. have a, at least this guy. And, and it wasn't just that either. It wasn't just a sort of psychological reaction to it. To be fair to Corbyn, Corbyn offered an analysis. Now, it might have been the wrong analysis. It might not have been entirely right. There might have been elements wrong with it. But if you think back to that campaign, I remember when I was at Newsnight at the time, I was holding a Huskies, you know, Cooper and Burnham in particular looked exhausted and it wasn't just because they were physically exhausted, they sounded intellectually exhausted. They didn't seem to have the intellectual tools to properly analyse that result. Now Corbyn, whether the analysis was right or not, did. He was like, this is about austerity, it's about austerity. Yeah, it's the same analysis it's always been, but it was nonetheless a compelling one. Kendall had an analysis, but it was an analysis no one wanted to hear, which was basically the Labour Party is terrible um, yeah. and should just transform itself, which no one wanted to hear. So I think those things, so I think it wasn't just a matter of those MPs not necessarily understanding their own party, but I don't think they understood, they didn't understand the, fa the psychology of how the Labour Party was reacting to that result, nor did they understand, I think, just quite how broken the sort of left of centre, I'm not even talking about New Labour, I'm talking about, you know, the sort of more traditional soft left of the Labour Party, the social democratic analysis. I don't think they quite understood how broken that approach was. And then, again, talking the history, I, I was very struck by one fact I just read was, uh, we, can't, we can't talk about Jeremy Corbyn without talking about anti-Semitism at yeah. the moment. 1945, I think you say 27, uh, 20, 20, 22 or 27, something 20, like that. 20, over 20 MPs uh, were Jewish, yeah. Labour MPs Jewish. One and there was one MP. other, and he was a communist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Um, tell us about about the history of the Labour Party in Israel. Yeah. And and, and where does it turn and change? When, yeah. Where does the left break with it? Well, of course, the Labour Party was the Zionist party. The Zionist party is, of course, Atlee's government and Annie Bevin as foreign secretary. Although Annie Bevin, interestingly, was quite anti-Semitic, and there are quite a lot of instances of him saying anti-Semitic things, including on the floor of the House of Commons. But nonetheless. It was the Zionist party. They were obviously around in 1948 and in government and instrumental, not least because, of course, Palestine was then a British mandate, mandate Palestine, without British involvement or at least British acquiescence, even though they technically handed over to the United Nations, there would have been no Israel. Um, and the reasons for that are absolutely obvious, the terrible guilt and horror of the Second World War, a feeling as well that socialism in particular had let these people down, that socialism had failed to react properly to Nazism and the threat of fascism, and that therefore socialism had a particular obligation. And of course the Conservative Party and the right at that time have a, whatever their personal views, have a big reputational problem with the Jewish community, not only just in Britain but across Europe, because of course it is the right, even obviously the Conservative Party are not the fascist right and nonetheless the right and many of the rights associations with the fellow Nazi regime yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and all of those sort of things and of course all you have to do is read any sort of novels from that period and you see the, lots of references in the British aristocracy to kind of oh the Hebrews and all of this mm. sort of thing it's the conservative part of the right that have all of this sort of problem that maintains and the Labour Party is entirely um, consistent pretty much for the next 20 uh, or 30 years Harold Wilson in particular is a big big advocate of, of Israel when he's about it starts to change in the 1970s, really, um, when so much of politics changes. But uh, when, as I say, we alluded to before, when the left starts to undergo this identitarian turn, the left stops just being about what fundamentally it has been pretty much since the start of the 20th century, which is a, uh, a political tradition grounded in economic analysis of economic justice. It starts to, rightly in many ways, respond to bigger changes in society by looking at identitarian issues, what we now call identity, identity politics, those of race, of sex, and all of those sort of things. As society has this revolution in individualism, really, you start to see people um, care about cultural issues a lot more, there's issues around self-expression, around individual rights, things that wouldn't have even occurred to the left in the 1940s and 50s because it was all about solidarity yeah. and solidarism and all these things. But in a response to the feminist revolution, new wave, all of these sort of things, the focus on the individual and individual empowerment becomes much greater and along with that um, the rights of individual subgroups within society, whether that's race, or sex, or homosexuality, all those things, all the things that we now very much associate with the left. But you didn't associate with the left in the 60s or the 50s or anything like that. And one element of that is an interest in anti-colonialism, in a way that the Labour Party had not been anti-colonial in any way whatsoever. Yeah. Attlee lamented the loss of India just as much as Churchill did. It was just Attlee was more realistic and realised the game was up, whereas Churchill wanted to spend, you know, 100,000 troops onto the, into Mumbai and, uh, you know, all of these sort of things, Bombay, is it, and so all of these sort of things. So uh, there is this increasing preoccupation with anti-colonialism and, and racial issues and an anti-colonial feeling. And Israel is the absolute epicenter of that for these new left movements. Why? Well, because not only is it an anti-colonial feeling that starts to really start to grip people, but also uh, an anti-Western feeling. And, and Israel huge, gets close to America. In clo the, yeah, Israel's very close to America. America. And in, also yeah. one of the principal preoccupations at the time is apartheid and apartheid South Africa. In many cases, to the great credit of many of these people, but nonetheless, the, and we've seen how potent this charge is even now, the idea that Israel is like apartheid South yeah. Africa. 
Um, and the fact that you have this confluence, and this is why Israel is such a toxic issue for the, for the left now, and for people like Jeremy Corbyn, is, it, is a confluence of all of the things they dislike. It's a confluence of attachment to the West, in a region which is not Western. Uh, it, is, it is a um, dislike of hard power. Um, and uh, Israel is very militarily powerful. Uh, it is a, and also an attachment to a racially oppressed underdog, in this case the Palestinians, uh, in the midst of all of these sorts of things. So you have all of these, there's a thing about capitalism and wealth, which is a very old left anti-Semitic trope, which does predate all of this thing, or as a confluence of all these things which come together. And Israel embodies them. And obviously one of the controversies has been that for many people that has spilt over into in some cases, pretty blatant anti-Semitism. Um, you spent a lot of time with the Corbynistas and, and yeah. these new members. Yeah, and Corb- yeah. um, how aware are they of history? Do, do, are they are they aware that they're a break with the past? No, they definitely don't think that they're a break with the past. They're sort yeah. of weird because, on the one hand, they think they're very radical, but also they also think they're very attached to Labour Party's history, which is a sort of weird tension. But I don't think they really sort of think about it in that way. Um, I mean, do they mention figures from the past? Atlee yeah. is always the one that they come back so to. So they talk about Atlee? Uh, they, they talk about Atlee, but they also, I mean, like, for example, uh, I saw John McDonald the other day, he was asked yeah. who his political hero was, he said Atlee. But of course, Atlee is a very, I mean, you know. They, they, I, I know quite a lot about Atlee. Yeah. I mean, that is, they could not be more different. No, and Atlee, I, I mean, it's, it's always difficult to judge. It's yeah. always difficult to judge how people in history would regard yeah. foreign movements, but he would not be comfortable no. in Corbynese or so. No, he'd be very confused, I think, by, uh, by a lot of these. I mean, Atlee had a word for, for people like this, people like Harold Lasky, uh, you know, he called them the impossibilists. You know, right. there's people who yeah. always wanted more. I mean, you know, people forget now, obviously, the 1945-51 Labour government is considered now. I mean, I've been in, I've been in speeches when I've heard, you know, uh, Labour Party figures up to and including you know, people like Donald Corbyn saying that, you know, we're going back to Atlee. We're going back to this, that it's the, it's the only Labour government which in the left side, was, in the modern left side, true. is pure, yeah. true. But of course, you know, that totally overlooks the fact that, once again, of course, for so many people at the time, it was conservative and didn't do enough and didn't exploit the fact they had this huge majority. Right. I mean, we yeah. find that extraordinary. We find that extraordinary. Bevan resigned. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, Bevan resigns in protest about the whole thing about prescription charges and all of these sort of things. You know, there's always, there's always, there's always been one of the great tensions within the Labour Party. And in some ways, that's probably the thing that's not new about it. There's always been, you know, there's always, and, it, and it's different for every generation, whether it's the Jenkinsites or the Benites yeah. or the, you know, uh, Attlee or Bevan or whoever it is, or Gateskull. Uh, and Bevan, and in this case, you know, Corbyn and Blair, you know, there's always been, there's, there is this, this legitimate tension and it sort of reinvents itself with every generation. The difference this time is, is that the left are in charge and that hasn't happened before. You know, there's always been from the sidelines, but, you know, even with Mike, Michael Foote was not, Michael, people sort of say Michael Foote, Michael Foote was a totally different, so he, in some ways he was a very atypical figure. Um, well, Harold Wilson was, he was of the left, but he was, yeah, he, exactly. he was working with the right, basically. Oh, wasn't he? You know, he was, he was, was an acceptable left for the right. Yeah. And he was a chameleon, and he, yeah. he was, you know, totally different. Chameleon, Wilson, I mean, Wilson's, I think, a fascinating figure, but he's fundamentally extremely English in a lot of ways. You know, he's a very, he was a very sort of ordinary man. Uh, who liked Boy Scouts and he liked the you know Silly uh, Arles and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Tamar and all these sort of you yeah. know, all these sort of things you know he was he was and he was a committee who basically you know he kept the Labour Party together in some ways you know um, uh, but he's he was a very he's a sort of very very different figure the difference this time so occasionally you're right occasionally the left thinks it's got its man as they did with Wilson as to some extent they did with Foot 
but they've never really got their man before. And anyway, as I say, to be honest, Corbyn is a very different sort of leftist than the one that even existed even then. Yeah. You know, the closest agreement you would get is Ben. And Ben, you know, that's what I mean when people talk about the 1980s and make comparisons. And now, you know, Ben couldn't even get the deputy leadership. You know, he nearly got it. It was incredibly close, but he didn't yeah. get it. No, you know, no. the, le the, the and, he, and, it, and it was a, a year-long love affair, really, wasn't it? It was yeah, over by the 84 or so. Yeah, yeah, at yeah, most. Yeah, you know, yeah. and then and then you could just see it as one long dwindling. You know, by the time he's still standing in sort of against Neil Kinnock and for the leadership in the 1988, and I think he gets 10% of the MPs. You yeah. know, or 10% of the overall votes of the party. You know, it's 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 a story of failure, not of success. Tell us, Jono. Talk about the trade unions a little, because that's another thing that has changed. Trade unions used to be, this sounds weird, trade unions used to be of the right. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And now they're of the left. To give us a bit of historical well, context within, on that. Well, again, within the, uh, I mean, if you think about it, it makes, it makes sense. Right going back to the Labour Party's foundation, this was the case. The unions were on the, were on the um, right of the party. You know, they were, and always have been, and you still see glimmers of it now. They've always been concerned fundamentally, and it was, they were particularly moved to the right after the failure of the general strike, in particular, but, but, Fundamentally, they're concerned with what? They're concerned with the welfare of their members. Think about it today. Perfect illustration of this, and you're already starting to see the splits within the sort of new trade union Corbyn uh, alliance, is that, you know, no better issue demonstrate that than that of nuclear weapons. You know, on the, fa the rest of the Corbyn alliance, if you like, are obviously resolutely against nuclear weapons. Whatever Corbyn says about what he'll do now, he very, very clearly is. The trade unions, even McCluskey, one closest... Corbyn's closest allies will not endorse the idea of getting rid of the nuclear weapons. Why? Because he's got members at Fast Lane. Because he's got members who work in the not and in Barron Furnace. You know, in the nuclear industry, here, there, and everywhere. And he doesn't. He knows. I mean, he would be a pretty bad trade union leader <laughs> if he was like, well, you know, that's just the way it is. You're gonna have to lose your job, lads. You know, yeah. like. And so there is, and you see that within, and but then there are elements of momentum who that's all they care about. And you can see already, you saw it with the general secretaryship fight this year as well. You can see that there's a, you know, and the trade union candidate actually won, but you could see with John Landsman, the fact he wanted to stand. To him, the trade union, it's not an alliance with the trade unions in some ways, because the real radicals like that, the trade unions with their sort of backslapping and machine politics, and fixing are kept, kept, things, yeah, yeah. fixing every contest, making sure, you know, the, the kind of, the traditional Labour Party machine as it's always been. That's the antithesis of what they want. They want to democratise the party. Again, trade unions have an issue with that. They don't want to see their power diffused. In some ways, why should they? They put all the money up, or a lot of money, not so much now because they've got so many members, but traditionally, they've been putting the money up. Why should their power be diffused? You know? But I was wondering, is Len McCluskey the most left-wing union leader virtually ever, in, in a way? I mean, it's... No, I, I think that, I mean, in the 80s, there were a real mix. I mean, it right. wasn't all just one way, you know, you had, but we're certainly true to say that, for example, Healy could not have triumphed in the, um, the deputy in, leadership, deputy leadership yeah. election in 81 without, you know, support like the Transport and General Workers Union and all those, sort of, yeah. you know, very much on the sort of right of the party because they thought that, you know, the, this new left was, again, out to, dif to, dis to diffuse their power, uh, was not what they approved of. Many of these people were, you know, very traditional Labour men, and they were men, all men, you know, traditional Labour men, quite socially conservative, not especially radical, just steeped in the sort of old traditions of the Labour movement. Now, some of them clearly weren't like that, and you saw that change, when we talk about the Roman factory, people like Red Robbo, not a trade union leader, but a big figure um, um, at that time. You know, there's always been that split again, but I don't think in some ways, is McCluskey that left wing? Yeah, no, I suppose just the point of the... Yeah. The, 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 
the left has now got the unions on side. Yeah, it's it is an unusual. And, and, but I, and I think to some extent that is reflective of the fact that the trade union position within the country has become so much weaker and they're so much smaller. Yeah. You know, when there were 14 and a half million members, you could say that they were genuinely representative of the country at large. Now, what are they representative of? Unions are clearly very important, but they're largely representative of actually reasonably professional uh, public sector, some private sector, but often not the upper end of quite the kind urban of, again. Uh, quite urban again. Yeah. So, in some ways, the trade union movement has reflected what's happened in wider society, and as a result, has shifted its politics, as opposed to they were, and, and as a result, you know, they were rather different uh, in the 1980s. That's not to say they're still not interested in those things, they clearly are. Um, but it has changed, and there's no two ways about it. Um, I, won't, I won't keep you much longer, but just, just finally, this is news about looking back. Mm. The last chapter of your book is looking forward. Mm. Um, uh, a lot of people in the Corbyn movement feel history is on their side, but you make the point actually there are, there are some severe forces yeah. that are against them. Just, just run through what those well, are. Well, in terms of being on their side, I mean, this is actually one of the classic problems for the left, and I think the, the sort of the, the cleverer bits of the Corbyn movement are aware of this, but the less clever bits really are. I was at the general at the Labour Party conference last year in Brighton. And you know, the number of people you would just speak to who said, you know, it's gonna happen, it's destined, it's destined. Because the left, and the left of the Labour Party in particular, always, because it's fundamentally a Marxist analysis, or at least in its roots, it's an element of Marxist analysis, if not, if not always in practice, that, you know, basically, you know, capitalism is doomed to fail. It's doomed to fail. The, the, the population, sooner or later, will t see that. The scales will fall from their eyes. Their cultural alienation, economic alienation, will be removed, and they'll just suddenly think, oh, fantastic. And 2017, even though it clearly wasn't an outright success, confirmed that. And you can see why, it's entirely fair enough. You know, the whole world writes them off, and then actually it turns out that, you know, this man... And that's why 2017 is so important for Labour Party mythology, because never before has the left been able to point to anything, you know, or, and actually say, well, there's yeah. a success. In all the decades before, all the new Labour men of the party had to do was just say, 1983, yeah. long as I know the history. Now, 2017 will exist in that pantheon forever. Even if Corbyn loses 100 seats next time, they'll still say, they'll be able to say, 2017, you know, it just went wrong after that, but look at 2017, it shows you can move forward. The problem, I think, for, uh, for that wing of the party is that not only I think is that a wrong overall historical analysis about the idea that sooner or later the general population will turn sure. to the left, but there's a more there are bigger micro problems if you like as well, which is that you know the more you dig into the 2017 election results, the more you see that so much of it was a Remainer revanchist yeah. movement, uh, and that's why the Labour Party wins in seats like Canterbury and it wins in seats uh, like Warwick and Leamington, but it loses in seats like Stoke on Trent, Mansfield, uh, Mansfield yeah. and Middlesbrough South, not far from where my dad's from, and all those sort of places. Um, and the big question is is well, it's sort of two problems to that either way. On the one hand, maybe that's a temporary blip, um, in which case, but in which case, then do they lose seats like Warrington, they lose um, yeah. uh, Warwick, and they lose seats like Canterbury, and those sort of places, Kensington, and, uh, Kensington, yeah, 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 yeah. in which case you're sort of back to where you started. Um, and it, but if it's not a temporary blip, and which is what I think, which is that it's part of a sort of tur Brexit turbocharged realignment of British politics, as we were discussing earlier, around a sort of graduate, educated, non-educated, socially conservative, that the, the, the class base of the party potentially could invert, or at least to some extent invert, then that poses obviously enormous, enormous questions, not only in terms of what the electoral strategy is, because the fact of the matter is, is that the next election, you know, Labour's on 260 seats, assuming it can hold on to everything it's got, this is an assumption, 
but assuming it can get on to everything it's got, it's got to win, you know, 50 seats or so, and the seats that it's got to win are seats which are not like the seats it won in 2017. They are not the university towns, they are not the uh, rather pleasant suburban or semi-suburban bits of London or the other big cities. They've got all those, there's no more, there are literally no more of those to take. It's possible maybe they could get Putney, you know, if it keeps going away, did, although the local election result might imply otherwise, but you know, there's literally very, very slim pickings. They've got to win seats that are semi-urban, that are much more working class, that are older, much older, um, that are much whiter, much more like a traditional version of Britain. So, you know, you're looking at seats like Pudsey near Leeds, where again Labour went back um, in a uh, local election. Uh, you're looking again, winning seats back like Mansfield, which they lost. They've got to win those seats back. Question, a big question mark over whether they're um, able to do that. They've got to win seats like the Southampton seats they already have, Southampton Itchin, which is the more the older, less wealthy part of the town. I mean, all these places they've got to win in small town Britain, basically. They've got to win in Loughborough and all these seats that laid new Labour had, you know, Broxtow, all these sort of places which are not naturally receptive to the sort of messages that we saw in 2017. The question is, I mean, and that, that is the big question that's fighting within Corbynism at the moment. It's There are some who say, well, we need to go bolder. We need to be even more radical. Big question is that you might get even more votes in Hackney and, and wherever, but you get the Loughborough, votes yeah. in Loughborough. Yeah, yeah. And the other question is, is to what extent, uh, but to what, also to what extent can you afford to play it safe? Or what extent can you really, is Corbynism able to make a greater appeal to the place, people who live in those places? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. It might be, obviously everything depends on Brexit. It might be that simply the forces of attrition with the Conservative Party just wear Disintegrating, thin, yeah, yeah. Disintegrating, and it's, it's entirely possible. But what's really clear to me from the last 12 months is that, you know, we are in a American-style culture war with our political parties now. Think of the tumult there's been in the last 12 months. Everything on the Conservative side, Renfrew, Islamophobia, Theresa May's appalling election, um, appalling um, conference speech, and all of the issues around that. Boris resigning, Boris Johnson resigning, I should say, David, David. You know, Brexit just not being able to call anything together. Labour gripped by anti-Semitism, internal warfare, MPs resign, you know, you name it, it's been there. And we're basically still where we were at the general election. They're both at about 37 to 40 points apiece. They ain't moving anywhere. And then it just implies to me that we're just in this, because, partly because of Brexit, partly because of other things, we're just in this bifurcated politics where it's almost impossible for any one of them to make a tent that's big enough to get members of the other tent into it. Because it's you're just afraid because in a, in a cult in a, in a in a situation where there are so few swing voters left both sets of voters in the Labour and Tory tents are terrified of the other getting in so even if they don't really like Labour that they're Corbyn that much and they don't really like May that much which is demonstrated by their appalling opinion poll ratings they're so afraid of the other one for cultural reasons more than economic ones that they just stick resolutely. And that's why the Lib Dems are struggling and why any other spot party is struggling. Because in that situation, the last thing you want to do is take a risk on like the Greens or the Lib Dems or whoever. Something, um, something for your next book, Lewis. Something for my next book, yeah. 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 yeah, Lewis, that's brilliant. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. All right. That was-